You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. That sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Just the Plate, a production of Beyond the Plate. Just the Plate is a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this their favorite dish. Last week, we heard from Chef Magnus Nilsson of Faviken Magasinet Restaurant in Sweden. If you didn't catch that episode, I highly encourage you to check it out. It's super entertaining. Faviken has been a mainstay on the San Pellegrino World's 50 Best Restaurant list for many years. Nilsson's the author of a few cookbooks. You may recognize this name because Nilsson's been featured on the Netflix series Chef's Table, and he also was featured in the television series A Mind of a Chef. He actually doesn't do much media, but he happened to be in Chicago doing an exhibition for his latest book at the Swedish American Museum. So we caught up with him there for a little bit. And one of the things we discussed in last week's episode was his point of view on Nordic food and Nordic culture. And by Nordic, I'm not talking about any food from Denmark or Sweden. It's incredibly larger than that. But I really didn't know what I was getting myself into when I asked this question, quite honestly. But I loved his response so much that it inspired us to dig a little deeper and think, what was he actually talking about here? So again, if you want to hear last week's episode in its entirety, please check that out. But here's how this week's going to unfold. First, I'm going to read a brief section from Nilsson's introduction from his Nordic cookbook. And then we're going to play part of the interview that has Nilsson discussing Nordic food and culture. And then I flipped through this mammoth book of over 700 pages and one recipe for some reason just popped out at me and I cooked that recipe in my own kitchen and it's an incredible side for your own Thanksgiving feast coming up soon or any holiday feast or quite frankly, any time of the year. So I'll stop right there, but this is Just the Plate. So before we get into the section of the interview with Nilsson describing Nordic food and its culture, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from his book that's titled The Nordic Cookbook. So this is the first few paragraphs from Nilsson's introduction that goes... To write a book like this is not only impossible, it doesn't make sense. I heard myself saying to the publisher who pitched me the idea, I don't consider myself to be Nordic. I am, in fact, Swedish. I think most other people living in the Nordic region feel the same. We identify ourselves with the country we are from, not with the region that place happens to be considered part of. We don't like them becoming all lumped into one. I might have said at some point something along the lines of, to write a book on Nordic home cooking in general is about as stupid as to write one on European cooking, lumping Estonia, France, and Portugal together into one work that will never be deep enough to explain anything, or to make one on American cooking, taking in everything between Canada and Chile, trying to describe it in one book. I agonized for weeks over the proposal, but at the same time, I realized that the publisher had already decided there was going to be a Nordic cookbook. I could in one way see myself doing a book of this kind, but perhaps rather about Sweden, my home country, and not now, but in the future when I had more time on my hands, not while I was busy running the restaurant. However, if I were to say no, someone else would write the book that up until the publication of what you are now holding in your hands hadn't existed. Whatever I would later write, it would simply not be the first one, the leader on a subject that should have been covered a long time ago. I ruminated on the structure of the possible book, why it should exist, how to make it credible, 
After a couple of months of self-convincing and reasoning, I decided that the purpose of the book, in fact, had to be the same as the reason I was initially so put off by the idea of it. I decided to write the book and to make its mission to explain how similar our Nordic cultures really are, but also how they differ, how everything is tied together by our mutual history and our present culture and how it can all be tracked through the food we eat. Food is an undeniable and unavoidable marker of culture and society. People have to eat, and therefore, they also have to relate to food as a subject, regardless of whether they want to or not. So he goes on in this introduction, and truth be told, I'm going to suggest you all go buy this book. It's like an encyclopedia. It's over 700 pages, and I know he could have put out volumes of this thing. But the introduction is pretty amazing. It talks about how he went on Amazon and bought 400 different books to do research and took tons of time to put this together. But at the end of his introduction, he says, going from absolutely not wanting to write it to absolutely not wanting to stop writing it, getting to produce this book has been a tremendous privilege and a process from which I have learned so much about food culture I thought I knew. He credits a gentleman. He says, last but certainly not least, I would like to thank Richard Telstrom, food historian and associate professor of ethnology at Erebro University, who has helped out with the correctness of events described in this book and who has very generously shared his vast knowledge on the meal in the Nordic region. This gentleman, Richard Telstrom, writes a little introduction, and I just want to read the first paragraph because while so simple, it's also so deep. So he writes, The fastest way to understand the Nordic region's food culture is to eat an open sandwich topped with butter and hard cheese. Sounds so delicious. Such a sandwich is usually made from fresh ingredients that have been preserved for long-term storage, such as bread, leavened, seasoned butter, and dry hard cheese that has ideally been matured for one or two years. Many Northerners eat this sandwich every day. Its origins can be traced back for more than a millennium, and it exists in hundreds of variants. An open cheese sandwich speaks of the most fundamental aspects that make up a food culture in the Nordic region, but also demonstrates that a taste chord, the harmony that comes from several flavors, can live a very long time if it's important to people and provides meaning. Now, if you have any interest at all on Nordic food or the culture, I highly, highly recommend this book. It's called The Nordic Cookbook, published by Fiden, authored by Magnus Nilsson. With that, enjoy this excerpt on Nordic food and culture from Chef Magnus Nilsson. Educate us on what is Nordic food. The thing with Nordic food that I think is sort of the, the most important thing to understand straight from the beginning when we talk about it is that it's most likely uh, the most misunderstood food culture in the world. Simply because there is very little information to, to have, you know, if you if you don't have uh, people in the Nordic countries that you know very well. Uh, and there are two reasons for this. One is that the information that you can find in print and in sort of uh, different media, it's largely about a handful of very iconic dishes that, you know, like the herring, the meatballs, uh, open-faced sandwiches, whatever, that do not really reflect what people actually eat on an everyday basis. Or the information is about a couple of very, very high-end ambitious restaurants like Favik and Noma and a couple of others, uh, which doesn't really reflect what people eat either. So that's the first thing I think you, you need to think about when you think about Nordic food, at least that the information out there is very, very limited. And then the second thing that makes Nordic food hard to access and therefore misunderstood is that we don't have a tradition in the Nordic countries of eating an everyday meal in restaurants. 
That's a new thing. I mean, that's like the last 30 or 40 years. And that niche of restaurants, it's largely been filled with ethnic food. So the traditional Nordic food is eaten at home, making it really difficult for someone not from there to even get a chance to see what it is. Would you say it's more like, um, I feel like the food is it's more of a culture than a cuisine in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. It's like the thing also with the Nordic region is that it's a geographical construction. I mean, it's not a homogenous cultural region. It's, uh, you know, someone sat down in a mapping, sat, sat down in a mapping office somewhere at some point and decided that hmm, these countries here are going to be in a region and now we call it the Nordic region. Uh, but if you look at it, just the sheer size of it from Finland in the very east to Greenland in the west and everything in between, I mean, you can fit the whole rest of Europe a couple of times over in that geographical space and and that leads to a lot of diversity because there's so many different climate zones and cultural zones within the nordic region i think that's also i mean something that's very important when talking about nordic food um that there is no such thing as a pan nordic food culture i mean it's all a composite of many different food cultures and to me that was one of the sort of motivations to also writing a book about nordic food culture just because i felt that no one really understood what it was uh, it would be like saying european food culture and then including everything from you know portugal to england to some poland and you know um no one does that gosh he is so smart i can listen to him talk all day so i chose a recipe from his nordic cookbook it is simply creamed kale but the neat thing about cooking in general is that there's not only one way to cook. When flipping through this book and the 700 plus recipes that are within, for some reason, this cream kale caught my eye and the technique is truthfully never a technique that I would use, which got me even more curious. He has a bunch of different creamed vegetable recipes. A lot of them he uses a bechamel, a thickened you know, milk sauce for them. But this one uses a little bit different technique. And quite frankly, it's super simple. So I'm going to partially read this recipe and share some tips of what I did because it's a really easy one to put on the kitchen table. It's rich because it's cream. But uh, it will serve four to six people, you know, a little a little taste of this cream kale, add some richness to a plate. And if you want to half it, you can. If you want to double it, you can. He writes, when creaming a green vegetable like kale, you can do it in pure cream or with some flour. I prefer the flour option most times because it means that you don't have to reduce the cream that long before it thickens, giving a slightly less heavy result and fresher taste. And he's right. So this calls for, calls for about eight cups of coarsely torn curly kale. I bought one large bunch of curly kale and that did the job. It basically equaled about the eight cups. From there, he uses about seven ounces of heavy cream, chilled, not warm. One tablespoon of plain all-purpose flour, which he says is optional. I used it because I thought it would thicken it up nicely. And salt and white pepper to taste. That's ground white pepper. Not really used in a ton of kitchens, but definitely a unique taste. I would go easy on the white pepper. It's got a very distinct flavor as compared to black pepper. And you could find it in a little you know, container ground white pepper in store. A lot of people use this. I worked in a kitchen once and the chef that I worked for insisted that we use it to season uh, chicken noodle soup because he didn't like to see black specks. I know Rachel Ray uses it to season some things when she doesn't want to see black specks. And that, I, I feel like that's the main reason to use it, but I'm sure beyond that, it does lend a flavor to certain foods that enhances them in a nice way. So 
I take all the kale and I ripped it off the heavy stems and then I just tore it into pieces that were a couple inches by a couple inches. Don't measure, just rough chopped. You don't want a huge leaf. You want something that when you stick a fork into it, it's not going to hang down like a big noodle. And then from there, I washed the kale in some cold water in a large bowl and, you know, kind of let it dry out, let the water fall off a little bit. And then I brought a really large pot of water to a boil and I salted it because water doesn't come seasoned. (laughs) So you want it to taste like something. So I seasoned it with like two really fat pinches of salt or three probably. Probably equaled at least a tablespoon or two of of kosher salt I like to use. And then I did it in batches. Once the water came to a boil, dumped half of the kale in, had it in for about a minute and a half, two minutes, anywhere from one to two minutes, I would say. So you blanch it, it's going to become a really bright green color and it will cook the kale a little bit, help it get a little more tender and less tough. And then from there, I use tongs or if you have a small uh, strainer colander, you could kind of dip it in the water to retrieve the kale. And I put it in a bowl that had, I dunked the colander if you have one that fits. If not, you could dump it right in water. A big bowl of ice water and just kind of swished it around a little bit to stop the cooking process of the kale and to hold that bright green flavor. This is simply blanching a vegetable. And then I brought the water back up to a boil, gave it a little more seasoning and blanched the other half of the bunch of kale. Same thing, lifted it out, added it to the bowl of ice water, and then I left it sit in a strainer. Kale absorbs a good amount of water, so after it's strained out, I kind of took a couple different handfuls of it and squeezed it out like you would do to spinach sometimes, frozen spinach. So I wrung it out and then set it aside. So while that was aside, I took the seven ounces of heavy cream. I put it in a like a medium to large size sauce pot. Mine was about a three or four quart pot. I added the cream and then I took a whisk. And as I kind of sprinkled the tablespoon of flour, I whisked it into the cream. So I had this cold mixture. I then turned the heat to medium and kind of flaked all the kale into it just so it wasn't a big lump from when I wring it out. So I kind of flaked it all apart, all, all of the kale. Heat was on medium. And to be honest, the kale started to absorb it and I didn't know what was happening. But then as the cream heated up and got warm, it, it created a, a, a thickened sauce, if you will. I let that cook out probably for at least... 10 minutes on medium. Personal preference though, if you like it a little more loose and saucy, just to heat it through, you should be good to go in a few minutes. If you don't like it super saucy, you could either lift the kale out with tongs, put it in your serving dish, or just let it simmer out and the cream will reduce and actually become a little more intense and rich. Before I put it in the serving dish, I seasoned it pretty generously because kale is good to absorb some some salt and it brings out flavor. Um, I seasoned it with kosher salt and ground white pepper. And if you want to see that recipe or my finished dish, you can go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. I will put this recipe up there. I'll put a picture of the finished dish. And again, this is great to serve with a steak, with chicken, with fish as a Thanksgiving side. If it's only two people, you're cooking for one, you could have this. If you have a bigger group, you could double it. I think if you double this recipe, you'll be good to go to serve 10 or 15 people. They'll get a nice, you know, few forkfuls each. So that's it. Magnus Nilsson's creamed kale from the Nordic cookbook. 
Find more on Chef Magnus Nilsson at favikin.com. That's F as in Frank, A-V as in Victor, I-K-E-N.com. This episode was produced by Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, Sean Petrosian, and myself. Thank you all around. You can find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. If you would be so kind to rate and or review and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Just the Plate, a production of Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy.